We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's Thursday night, December 28th, 2023, as we bring you a new episode. Earlier this week, I did a roundup of Major League Baseball News Podcast, and Sure enough, there was a White Sox signing as soon as I stopped recording. The Chicago White Sox signed former Houston Astros catcher Martin Maldonado to a one-year, $4 million contract with a vesting option. We still do not have the details of how that second year could possibly vest for Martin Maldonado. Then today, according to Jeff Passett of ESPN, and the White Sox would later announce his signing on social media, the White Sox signed former Kansas City Royals and San Diego Padres left-handed reliever Tim Hill to a one-year, $1.8 million contract. So we've got two signings to discuss in our final episode of the 2023 calendar year, unless Dylan Cease gets traded. Joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com, it's Jim Margulis. And Jim, happy holidays. It was great to see you during the Christmas break. How was the trip back home to Chicago? Likewise, and it was good. A lot better than going to Chicago. There was a semi-truck that caught fire and shut down I-57 northbound for two hours. So we're sitting in traffic, uh, just doing nothing. Fortunately, two-year-old, really good. Like, no tears, a little bit of antsiness. Like, had to go into the back seat to entertain him a little bit. But otherwise, like, for sitting in place for two hours, already four hours into a trip, could have been a disaster. So we are, consider ourselves very lucky to have avoided that. Heading back, no problems. So we're very fortunate uh, to have uh, you know to, to get the worst out of the way and, and the rest of it being relatively smooth sailing. Did many Margulis like Chicago? Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't get to do as much as we wanted. It was more just family stuff. Uh, still need to take them, you know, on the train. Uh, Metra have the, uh, for those who are of a certain age, remembering the Metra TV commercials where kids get to enjoy an exciting train ride. And I want to uh, be able to uh, 
have him do that so I can say that over and over again to the uh, annoyance of my uh, <laughs> wife. But uh, didn't get a chance to do that. So hopefully next time around, you know, maybe uh, not gray and damp weather. Uh, that'll be a lot better for doing so. You know, Rob Hart would approve of your idea of the train rides. Big train guy, Rob Hart. Yep. But let's talk about some White Sox signings as uh, we are getting back into the swing of things on the Sox Machine podcast here, at least for a couple of weeks before I head on a vacation in January. And uh, of course, when I'm out, that's when all the big news of the White Sox will probably drop. But uh, I guess on the smaller scale, let's start with Martin Maldonado. We heard about this rumor Gosh, what was it, a month ago? Shortly after the GM meetings, the whispers of Martin Maldonado could be on the White Sox radar, Jim, as mm-hmm. someone that could come in and help out with the catching situation. But then the White Sox traded for Max Stassi. And my thought process was, well, there you go. That's the veteran catcher to help out Corey Lee behind home plate. As I figured the White Sox still wanted to give Corey Lee a little bit more run. But instead... The White Sox are kind of overloading on veterans. And after we spent a great deal of time talking about age regression for Yasmani Grandal and how that's expected for mid-30s catchers, the White Sox sign a late-30s catcher. And I am presuming, mm-hmm. based on the money, they are expecting Martin Maldonado to be the starting catcher for the 2024 Chicago White Sox. So let's start looking at this optimistically okay why could this be a good sign why why could this be a good signing for the white Sox, bringing in martin maldonado why it could be a good signing i think when it comes to where the white Sox are in terms of forming a rotation uh with all the young pitchers they will have coming up at some point whether it's nick nestrini uh christian mena could be coming up they whether it's Jared Schuster, who's uh, you know getting a second chance to stick in a rotation. You have a lot of guys who don't exactly know what they're doing at the major league level. So it makes sense to have at least one veteran catcher back there. And, you know, perhaps given the regard with which Maldonado's game calling and game planning pitcher management is held, seems like, you know, I guess you're going for the best in that regard. The one problem is that his framing, uh, his receiving kind of fell off a cliff last year. His blocking was still strong, uh, catching and throwing still strong. But when it came to like actually stealing strikes, preserving strikes, uh, that was a problem for him. And sometimes that's a one-year blip where you know maybe there's a an injury or pitchers they don't quite mesh with or whatever. But oftentimes for a catcher of his age it's a way a catcher declines. So you have to count on that not being so great anymore. So I think that's the really touchy part of this whole situation is like the Astros dealt with this last year in which like, you know, they had Yiner Diaz hitting better than Maldonado, but also like there's questions about whether he was receiving. But if it is a one-year blip and, you know, he returns to being an average framer along with above-average blocking and above-average throwing, then maybe you have a guy where at least you don't have to question how well a catcher is preparing for a game or how well the information is getting to the pitcher because he seems like he has that on lock. And that's at least one thing they can cross off the list as they try to get pitchers to not 
drown when being thrown into the deep end, whether it's like early in the season, second half, whatever, if Maldonado's around for it, he should be able to help in that regard. Yeah, and, and a couple of things that you touched on, like the positives for Maldonado, bringing up his stat cast data for last year. As Jim pointed out, Maldonado is still a plus blocker and thrower. And on the throwing side, I think that's on how the White Sox are going to sell this signing to the best of their abilities of selling anything to White Sox fans, Jim, mm -hmm. is Maldonado is going to help control the running game. Now, there are two parts of that equation, as we have talked about over the years. Yes, the catcher behind home plate can make a difference, but more or less, especially with the new rule changes, base runners are stealing off of the pitcher, especially when there's three throws over to a base when it comes to pickoff attempts. So Maldonado is still better at age 37 than Corey Lee demonstrated throwing behind home plate. And what's fascinating about Maldonado, one of those, because I always ask, like, can old dogs learn new tricks? Can old baseball players learn new methods as they continue their careers? Despite throwing three miles per hour slower in 2023 than he did in 2015, Maldonado improved his exchange gym time mm -hmm. from glove to throwing hand. And this is incredible. Like he's down to 0 0.66 seconds on average. Maldonado is exchanging the ball as he receives it and gets into a throwing position. And that was the quickest at age 37. That is the quickest Maldonado has ever been on the exchange. So even though he's an older catcher, he was learning a new trick on how to continue his pop time, which is still well below two seconds. It's around 1.9 seconds and that 10th of a second could be a big difference in controlling the running game, especially with stolen bases or steal attempts at second base. It's still on White Sox pitchers though, Jim, to be able to hold those base runners. But man, when you look at the stat cast data, Jim, I, I think we need to talk about the framing. Mm -hmm. This is where I've got questions. Like I understand Maldonado, much better blocker and thrower than Corey Lee or whoever the White Sox have internally. I get that. But man, Maldonado's strike rate was 41%. And that's my concern, Jim. Like you already have a group of White Sox pitchers that love to walk hitters last year. Mm -hmm. I don't think Maldonado makes that particular issue any better. Yeah, that's the point of tension with this whole signing. And that's my biggest concern is, you know, you already saw with the you know, Scott Merkin article I linked to in the post, Chuck Garfine's tweets getting really excited about what Maldonado can bring to the White Sox. And we've seen this before with Adam LaRoche, with Yonder Alonso, with Alex Avila, like when they came to the White Sox leadership. Uh, this is, you know, this is a team in need of leadership. They're going to be the ones to instill... Um, work ethic and confidence and accountability and whatnot. The tricky thing with that is the guy has to be a certain kind of good in order to be that kind of leader. And we've seen these guys show up in Chicago at the end of their careers and they're so behind the eight ball and producing the way they want to that they're unable to think outside of themselves they're just they're, they're so 
preoccupied with trying to get themselves up to average or up to playable. And with Maldonado being 37 years old, with there already being some signs of, you know, perhaps the, the end is closing in. He could have that same fight showing up to Chicago without any of the experience he had with Houston because like, you know, the you know, Dusty Baker liked playing Maldonado above Diaz and teammates in Houston loved Maldonado, but he was there for all the battles. They won a World Series together. They, you know, they had grown together and, and he had been there for all of their uh, biggest moments and tests and he'll show up to Chicago and while he has the reputation and I'm sure like everybody respects what he does. They don't have that firsthand experience of like, he's helped us win games. He's helped us. He's helped me get better. We've seen the results of him around and nobody else. And if he shows up and the White Sox are hundred loss bad and he's trying his best to hit above 150 and the framing is really rough to where pitchers are getting frustrated during the game, even if they're not directly blaming it on him. You could see that same kind of effect to where like you're not seeing any of these benefits of Maldonado's veteran presence because he's just not good enough for it to matter. So I think that's really my concern. And we've seen that with framing. And I think like the best example I know of framing is like when uh, Carlos Rodon loved throwing to anybody who wasn't a good framer. He loved throwing to uh, Omar Narvaez. He loved throwing to James McCann, did not like throwing to Yasmani Grandal, but like I uh, didn't, didn't like throwing to Kevin Smith, but like the guys who could help him steal strikes uh, or preserve strikes uh, weren't the ones he was paired up with. So there's a lot of frustration, a lot of glares, a lot of glove snaps, getting the ball back and staring off in the middle distance. And I think, you know, that's the kind of thing you could see, especially with young pitchers if Maldonado is not getting that strike. So I think that's really my concern. And they're putting a lot of eggs in this basket. I guess the good news is Max Stassi is around. Uh, they can split the playing time relatively evenly between two veteran catchers where it's not all on Maldonado. But it is my concern that they're going to show up to get the worst version. And it's going to be kind of like 2019 all over again with Maldonado, like showing up to a team like he's not good enough to help in any measurable way. Like the pitching staff's not there. Uh, the, you know, the lineup can't mask him the way that like a Houston lineup did. And you look at that, uh, you know, Kansas City Royals team in 2019, they lost 103 games and Maldonado didn't make a difference. And the pitching staff didn't really develop. Uh, like you have the Jacob Judas, Brad Keller, Glenn Sparkman, uh, Danny Duffy, Homer Bailey, Mike Montgomery, like all those guys, like not part of the next good Royals rotation. And so Maldonado is more or less a shrug for what he was able to provide because they were just too far gone for him to do anything. Yeah, the outside corners really hurt as far as Maldonado. And on the inside corner against right-handed hitters. So if you're a right-handed pitcher for the Houston Astros last year, trying to bust a right-handed hitter inside, for whatever reason, Maldonado's strike rate call dropped from 66% of the time in 2022 down to 54%. Now, framing you can say is an attempt to fool the umpires behind home plate. And maybe if you have an automated strike zone, that would help Martin Maldonado's framing numbers. But then you look at the lower part of the strike zone, and I'm wondering if there's an effort level here of concern. Pitches on the lower third of the strike zone 
Maldonado was just getting a 40.7% strike rate. Like, are you just dropping your glove if it's below thigh high, Jim? Like, he can't steal strikes consistently at, at the knees. And for White Sox pitchers, especially since Ethan Katz is coming to town, maybe that's not that big of a concern because a lot of these right-handed starters live up in the zone. But think about all the sliders that they throw, especially spiking sliders. We got Maldonado back there. If he can't frame a low breaking pitch for a strike, Jim, why should any opposing hitter swing at any breaking pitch that doesn't come high off of the hand? Like if there's any breaking pitch that's going to be towards the lower part of the zone, don't bother swinging at it because, again, White Sox pitchers had a very tough time locating those types of pitches last year. And now they're throwing a Martin Maldonado. I don't have any confidence that he can steal strikes in the lower third part, uh, lower third of the strike zone. So this is where during spring training and when Chris Getz speaks to the media again, this is where I think a lot of questions need to be directed to him. What are you seeing as a front office with Martin Maldonado, especially in the framing, because it crushes, it just crushes his absolute value to where he's like a negative war player. And is there anything that you can do to help him improve? And again, remember, he's 37 years old. He's joining a new team. Like, is how receptive is Martin Maldonado going to be on coaching tips to improve catching, right? That's the other concern that I've got. Well, it couldn't, you know, maybe it's not just an effort thing, but just a, he's 37 years old. Like the age has to set in somewhere. And so like maybe he's trading off like stealing high strikes versus being able to catch low strikes. And if he were able to catch low strikes, he wouldn't be able to catch high strikes. Like he's logged a ton of time. He's played over a hundred games uh, three years in a row. Like he's been the primary point person all this time and like it's got to show up somewhere in his age <laughs> or just like his his production so like I wouldn't necessarily think it you know effort because that's kind of like infers like a character shortage and that doesn't seem to be the case whatsoever I would just be like Occam's razor I would just think like he's just maybe getting old and this is the way it manifests itself is just the not the ability not to cover the entire strike zone with his mid anymore. And he has to kind of pick and choose based on the, the pitcher he's uh, receiving or maybe the stance he's most comfortable adopting behind home plate in his later thirties uh, that uh, you know, something's got to give. I guess, but I just wonder if I'm going to have to watch some film of Maldonado. My on the effort thing like my perception is is that he just gives up as the pitch is traveling down the tunnel if he thinks it's just too low to be a strike that there's not much of an effort to frame that pitch in the strike zone because i mean 41 percent that's so low that's such a low strike rate i mean we're going to be talking about a 10 percent difference for white Sox pitchers from last year to maldonado so anything that's low in the zone, pay attention to early when it comes to Maldonado, especially this upcoming season. All right, so that's the defensive side, and that's you. That's typically where all the value is in Martin Maldonado because hitting-wise, he's like a 35-grade hitter on the 20 to 80 scale. Expect something like a 185 batting average, 260 on base percentage, and if lucky, a 350 slugging percentage. Maldonado is a pull hitter. And if he hits the ball in the air, I think he's got a chance to maybe hit 10, 15 homers. He's hit 15 homers in back-to-back seasons, which would be an improvement for 
White Sox catching last year. But this is the funny thing. Like when people hear pool hitter and you're a Houston Astro, oh, the Crawford boxes helped you. And it did to a point like Maldonado's home run split was pretty even between home and away, but home against right-handed pitchers, which Maldonado cannot hit right-handed pitching at all. His OPS was 500 away against lefties and righties. Maldonado's OPS was 564, 571. So those three splits Maldonado below 600 OPS, but hitting in Houston Against left-handed pitching, Maldonado's OPS over a thousand. <laughs> he had three forty-seven, a four oh seven on base percentage, and slugged six twelve against left-handed pitching at home at the uh, the juice box at Houston. So that's where all his offensive numbers came from. You know, I'll take that. If Maldonado can hit have an OPS over a thousand against left-handed pitching at Guarantee Rate Field Gym, I guess. You got to take that. But another concern, and we haven't brought him up, Pedro Grafal and his tendencies to just lean on veteran guys and continue to play them every single day against common sense. I'm thinking Maldonado's getting 110 games for the White Sox this year. And if Maldonado can get a 600 OPS or better, I guess we should just accept that because of what we've seen the last three years offensively, Jim. I just don't know where you bat him in the lineup. Well, he's one of like seven number nine hitters the White Sox have in the lineup, basically. And so like he could be right. hitting like, you know, fifth. Who knows? Um, yeah, that's the other concern I have with uh, Maldonado. Just with this uh, coaching staff is last year, Pedro Griffol and Mike Tozar talked a big game in terms of like how they're going to game plan differently from the previous administration, or at least, you know, that was what Rick Hahn said. Like he felt their game planning was going to be better. Mike Tozar said like our uh, game planning is going to be elite. And then after the season, you had Pedro Grafol after Yasmani Grandal is no longer White Sox trashing the White Sox game planning and saying they're pretty poor at it last year and saying like, Oh, you know, nice of you to say that after, you know, Grandal leaves the room. And so, like, you have a case of, uh, you know, Griffoles doing one thing or saying one thing when it could make a difference and saying another when somebody's out of the room or somebody's traded or somebody's injured and a new guy steps in. And Maldonado, I guess, covers for that. But, I, you know, I'm not really a fan of any move that, like, acquiesces to Griffoles tendencies like i'd rather him like have to put on some big boy pants and actually manage directly and uh you know take on some conflict uh for players with status versus like having guys griffol can hide behind so that's why i'm also a little bit uh unimpressed with the signing like i i get it in terms of like what he could mean for a pitching staff but like if he's able to improve the plan, and this is the other thing that confuses me, is the White Sox added a catching coach to their coaching staff next year in Drew Butera. And so they added Butera thinking like, okay, he's going to be handling a catching tandem that's going to feature a lot of Corey Lee or a lot of Carlos Perez. And one of those guys might be able to use the help. Okay, get that. Even like Max Stassi with Perez or Lee, like, Given Stassi missed all of last season, sure, it, it's, it helps to have somebody able to like spend some extra time with Lee or Perez if they think it can help or at least worth the experiment. But now you have Butera coming in and he's overseeing 
maybe the best game planner in baseball and another veteran catcher. And it's like, you know, what does he have to do now? Like, what does that role do? So like, it feels like they went from like Griffol and Tozar talking a big game to like now having three different guys who aren't Griffol, uh, improving game planning. And it feels like he's going to take credit for it. If it improves like, no, I just hire Maldonado's manager. Like just, uh, you know, have turn the vesting option to a new manager contract and like go with that. <laughs> if like, uh, you know, you need all these external guys to improve game planning, which was Griffol's, uh, you know, his jurisdiction all along. So that's the other reason why it just feels like this could get, a little bit murky and like Griffol comes in and takes credit for like something players are doing because he couldn't do it last year when players weren't doing it. Uh, and yeah, I, I just, I don't trust him to uh, not give credit where credit's due. If, if taking the credits will make him look better. If Maldonado can be a league average framer in 2023, I think that puts him at zero to maybe half war, like half a win in value. But that framing paired with the game planning, blocking, and throwing, I think could help with what we assume is going to be a very young and inexperienced starting pitching staff for the Chicago White Sox. And that war will not be able to calculate the overall value that Martin Maldonado brings to the White Sox. I totally get that line of thinking. But that is where Maldonado has to improve. He cannot frame like he did last year for the Houston Astros. And you can go and read all the Astros blogs and analysis. Part of the reason why Dusty Baker retired because he just couldn't handle the criticism. And this was a huge point of criticism from Houston media to Dusty Baker. And why is Martin Maldonado playing so often? So congrats White Sox fans. Now we get that responsibility as we plan on watching Maldonado make a hundred, 110 starts for the White Sox. Again, offensively, he's not going to bring much, but if Maldonado can be just a league average framer, I'm not talking about an elite framer, Jim, just be a league average framer, Mm -hmm. have a strike rate above 50%. Then I could see where the positives, the White Sox want to get for $4 million signing. And honestly, $4 million is not a lot of money for starting catcher in major league baseball. But if he can't frame, then I just don't see yeah. where the overall positive aspects of this signing come from. Yeah. Fortunately, like Edgar Caro and Adam Hackenberg, if he continues to progress are a year away, or at least a half of baseball away from being a potential Yiner Diaz like presence to where like, sure. You got to get off the Maldonado habit and give this guy some playing time. Like I don't really care if Maldonado plays or Stassi plays like they're both around for one year or like, we'll see what Maldonado's vesting option is, but you know, I can, I'm not going to see any reason to be particularly attached, but like, say if Carol were the guy, uh, like either the backup or like, you know, by May or June being somebody who could be able to take over the majority of starts and like Griffol wouldn't want to give it to him, then it could be a headache. So I, I think they're at least got the timing rights of this kind of signing and they can rest easy knowing like if Nestrini or Mena or whoever else isn't able to hit the ground running. They'll know it's not like anything their catchers are providing them. It's not like they're, they're tying Corey Lee to, uh, Mena's feet. And that's why he's not able to keep his head above water. Like if, if, if Lee 
continues to struggle uh, as a major leaguer. Uh, at least they they can sleep easy, uh, knowing that like they've at least given them the know-how. Uh, but you know, as I mentioned with like the 2019 Royals, it could just be like the talent deficit is too great for Maldonado to matter. And afterwards, like you'll have people saying nice things and people saying this is what he did, and you might not be able to tell a difference. And you just have to smile and nod and say, okay, okay, um, Edgar Caro, please. And hopefully they're ready to turn, turn the page if the page needs to be turned. You know, if they don't turn that page, then again, it's just another detriment to Pedro Grafal as a Major League Baseball manager. And he's already got plenty of X's <laughs> next to his tenure, even though it's just been one year with the White Sox. But I, I understand your concerns, Jim, and I think they are valid concerns. Martin, just frame better, buddy. Just just frame better and I think the White Sox can get some positivity out of this signing. Let's talk about the second White Sox signing after a quick break from our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast. All right, so after a lengthy conversation of what Martin Maldonado will and will not bring to the Chicago White Sox, the White Sox make a signing to bolster the bullpen. It's not a big signing, so don't be too concerned, at least on that front. But the White Sox signed former Kansas City Royals and San Diego Padres left-handed reliever Tim Hill. And it's just a one-year deal. $1.8 million. He's 33 years old. And if you remember Tim Hill during the 2018-2019 Kansas City Royals seasons, Hill's is funky left-handed side armor, Jim. He has like the third lowest release point in Major League Baseball. So why could the Tim Hill signing be good for the White Sox? They need a lot of relievers. That's, I guess, where you can start. Uh, really, the bullpen got whittled down to Gregory Santos and Garrett Crochet, and both of them dealt with injury issues late in the year. So, uh, you know, whether it's Lane Ramsey or Sammy Peralta and the cast of thousands that kind of filled in, like there aren't any 
fixtures in the bullpen, like Jordan Leisure might be as like close as it gets based on the way he threw in the AFL and the reports of just what he might be able to provide. But still, an open-ended mess can use all kinds of help. So Tim Hill provides the possibility for a lefty who gets ground balls, keeps the ball in the yard, maybe replaces Aaron Bummer for better in that regard, or he replaces Aaron Bummer for worse as the guy who gets like weird contact that uh, the defense can't account for because like he had a pretty miserable year at the Padres last year. Like at best he was decent, but never quite solid. And then had some injury issues in the second half where things deteriorated on him and uh, just a lot of unearned runs, a lot of hits like Babip through the roof. Um, and that, Everybody remembers the Aaron Bummer experience. Like it's, it's that's with fewer walks, but kind of everything else. Hard contact when it isn't a good sinker or a fastball riding up in the zone, and righties especially made him pay. Yeah, his career ground ball rate for Tim Hill is fifty nine point eight percent. So about sixty percent of the time, Tim Hill is generating some type of ground ball. And with the White Sox, we think improved defensively up the middle <laughs> with Paul DeYoung and Nicky Lopez at shortstop at second base. Maybe the White Sox could take more advantage of a left-handed reliever out of the bullpen that generates that type of ground ball rate. But Hill does not strike out batters at all. In 2022 and 2023, his strikeout rate has really dropped. His K per nine was 4.69 in 2022. And last year, it was point. Two eight. He does take the ball, though. He pitched in 48 games in 2023 before getting hurt, pitched in 55 games in 2022, and almost pitched in half of the games for the San Diego Padres in 2021. He appeared in 78 games for the San Diego Padres. So if things are going well and Tim Hill is not dealing with any type of ligament or arm issues, he could be used quite a bit for the Chicago White Sox, which, to Jim's point, with so much uncertainty with the bullpen now, that could be a good thing. Let's talk about the concern, the ligament injury in his pitching hand. You wrote about this, Jim, on SoxMachine.com because when after the signing, I, I go to the Baseball Savant page to look at the StatCast data. Like, what was the difference between 2021 Tim Hill and 2023 Tim Hill? Because in 2021, Tim Hill was serviceable. And if the White Sox, along with Brian Bannister and Ethan Katz, if they could find a way to get the 2021 version of Tim Hill, he may only last half a season with the White Sox because they could flip him at the trade deadline as contending teams need more sixth, seventh inning type of guys. Like, I think that's the best outcome of this signing is that Tim Hill pitches really well in the first half to merit getting traded at the deadline. But... In 2021, Tim Hill is mostly a four-seam sinker type of pitcher. His average velocity on the four-seamer was 92 miles per hour. On the sinker, it was 91.1 miles per hour. Well, last year, because of the ligament injury, as Jim wrote on SoxMachine.com, Hill's four-seam velocity dropped to 90.6 miles per hour. But the sinker velocity is glaring, Jim. Just 88.6 miles per hour. And even though he gets some of the best extension in Major League Baseball with his unique windup gym, that two and a half mile per hour drop is resulting in why opposing hitters had an OPS over 900 against Tim Hill 
2023. So with Maldonado, we talked so much about we got to focus on the framing numbers in order for any positivity from that signing. I think we got to pay attention to velocity for Tim Hill because if he can hit 91 again with the sinker, maybe he can go back to his 2021 self, Jim. But if he doesn't, Mm -hmm. it's just $1.8 million. It's not a lot of money in baseball terms, but Tim Hill could have just been a non-roster invitee. You did not have to guarantee money to a pitcher like Tim Hill. Yeah, I guess there is some solace in the fact that, like, when you look at his pitch velocity during the season, like, it did drop off, at least with the four-seamer, it dropped off pretty dramatically in the second half as he was dealing with those finger ligament uh, injuries, those the ring finger in his left hand. So you could point to the injury and say, like, yeah, some age was setting in or at least some velocity drop, but really, like, it was severe because he was dealing with something that needed to be surgically repaired and it wasn't until the end of the season that he actually got that taken care of. However, the sinker velocity was down all year, uh, was you know between 88 and 89. Uh, so like that's not great. Uh, also, the White Sox track record with guys who had season-ending surgeries. When you think of Andrew Benintendi, when you think of Joe Kelly, when you think of Kelvin Herrera, Guys whose season ended with like one procedure or another, uh, the White Sox thinking like, yeah, they'll be back to form by spring training. Like just, you know, use that as a ramp up period and they'll be good to go. And like their stuff either was really slow to return or didn't return. And uh, like Herrera, you know, never came back all the way. Kelly uh, couldn't be used in back-to-back games for the first half of the season. Ben and power was nothing. So like, that's why when I look at like, somebody like Tim Hill and say like, yeah, I can see like finger thing being minor and putting him behind him. But like the skepticism that I have the White Sox being able to estimate their abilities to get guys back to hundred percent quickly, I, I feel is warranted. And obviously like, you know, not everybody's going to be healthy, especially with the budget the White Sox are working with. And you know, the guys they want to try to buy low and sell high on, and they're going to have to, probably keep trying this but i'd like to see some success before saying like yeah he'll bounce back uh also i suppose this might be a good test for brian banister see what he's all about see if he uh has anything specific for hill to regain maybe some of the life or a little bit of hop on that four seamer or a little bit of life on that sinker but yeah i look at and think like this isn't gonna be anything special but yeah i think velocity will be the key especially with like maximizing that extension to be like 92 feels like 95 versus 90 feels like 92. And nobody really has a problem with 92 after a couple of looks. Yeah. The, when it comes to Tim Hill and the $1.8 million, again, it's not a lot of money, but one name that caught my attention is the Dodgers officially announced signing Yoshi Nobu Yamamoto is that they cut Brian Hudson. And if you recall podcast listeners, when I was pitching my, possible trade ideas for Dylan Cease with the Los Angeles Dodgers. Hudson was like the fourth player in a package coming back to Chicago because he's from Godfrey, Illinois, even though that's downstate. And he's a left-handed reliever that threw some last year that he could help out in the White Sox bullpen. And his stuff, as far as like extension, 98th percentile, he's a huge lefty. He's 6'8". Uh, so that could be quite deceiving and quite devastating for opposing left-handed hitters. He just he just needed more major league time. He got beat up in six appearances for the Dodgers last year, but he pitched really well in AAA. And I thought the White Sox should take a flyer on someone like Hudson, and maybe they still can. 
But we talk about the state of the bullpen, and I've been doing this on Twitter, which you can follow me at SoxMachine underscore Josh, and of course follow us at SoxMachine, where I've been putting out, all right, here's the White Sox player payroll. Like if I have to create a 26-man roster gym using the current 40-man roster for the Chicago White Sox, I'm at like $131.2 million payroll right now for the White Sox. And the bullpen, I've got four lefties now. Garrett Crochet, Tim Hill, Remember, the White Sox made a Rule 5 pick, so Shane Drohan from the Boston Red Sox has to be part of the bullpen. And then maybe Tanner Banks, if you still want Banks to be part of the bullpen. So if you got eight relievers, are the White Sox really going to go with four lefties? I guess if two of those lefties are more multi-inning guys, maybe like Banks has had reverse splits. Drohan's got a, you know, he might be a reverse split guy based on his changeup. So, um, possibly, but I think it's just going to be a, a project all year. And it's going to be about who is going to provide either bulk innings or have a rubber arm or not walk guys. If it's a case like last year where a lot of guys just can't find the strike zone. So I would think like when it comes to the handedness mix, as long as they're not like all sweeping slider lefties that don't feel comfortable coming over the plate to righties, um, then you might be able to get away with it. Uh, but yeah, it is a case where who knows, like in terms of like what this bullpen is going to look like at the end. Um, it could be like a week to week project to where just a lot of shuttles and revolving doors between Charlotte and Chicago and really putting that option, uh, maximum to use the four option limits for pitchers because of just yeah. how many fresh arms they're going to need and how many guys just won't be able to hack it. And I'm good with that. And I think you and I agree on that. Like we are good with that. Try as many guys as you want out of the bullpen, like develop relievers, stop spending $40 million on relievers when you don't even bother addressing right field and second base. And those positions have to play nine innings of a 162 game schedule, (laughs) like focus more your efforts and money on position players and develop your relievers. And I'm totally cool with that. As far as that exchange between Charlotte and Chicago all year long, I'm just curious to what the mixture is going to be. Like Shane Johan is going to be part of the white Sox bullpen, or they got to send him back to Boston. And that was like a waste of like $50,000 with the rule five pick. And now they've added Tim Hill. And like I said, I think the best case scenario, if Hill can pitch like his 2021 self gym, maybe he gets flipped and you get like a, a 22 year old high A prospect <laughs> for Tim Hill. Maybe Martin. Yeah. Maybe he's in a package deal with Martin Maldonado. Yeah, There you go. There you go. So that's the, that's the biggest silver lining with these free agent signings. They might get traded. Yeah. <laughs> that is that is where we are when it comes to the 2024 Chicago White Sox. But yeah, building out the 26-man roster with Dylan C. still in tow. Uh, I've got the 26-man pay, player payroll when you also include out the buyout and dead money at $131.2 million. And I enjoy all the comments on social media like, this has got to be the worst $131 million team in Major League Baseball history. And yeah, I mean, right now you're starting infield for opening days looking like Martin Maldonado, a catcher, Andrew Vaughn at first base, Nicky Lopez at second, Paul Dion at shortstop, and Yuan Makata at third, with Andrew Benatendi 
in left, Luis Robert in center, right field. I'm assuming Gavin cheats out of what the White Sox have eternally. And DH is Eloy Jimenez and Max Stassi's your backup catcher to go along with Zach Remillard and Robbie Gonzalez and whoever Pedro Gafold falls in love with and must have them on the, the bench to start the year. Like, yeah, those are your position players right now. And, uh, a lot's going to have to go right in order for them to win 75 games in 2024. But I think we are, we all assume and we understand, we accept now that despite Chris Getz, you don't think Getz is going to try to sell the idea the White Sox think they're contending with the news of Martin Maldonado signing. Do you, Jim? No, I think he's trying to get through 54 outs as quickly as possible. I, I totally get that strategy. Making making outs in the field, making outs at the plate. Well, let's, let's hope that they do make outs in the field. Four corners offense. If you're going to be bad, be quick about it, right? That's going to be the, two, the 2024 Chicago White Sox. We're awful, but we're quick. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and before we sign off on this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast, like I mentioned in the intro, Unless there is more breaking news that merits an emergency podcast. This is our last scheduled podcast of the 2023 calendar year. And I just want to thank everyone that supports us, whether you're a Patreon supporter or you listen to the podcast every single episode that it hits the feeds or you're just an occasional podcast listener when there's news like the White Sox signing players. We appreciate you. We hit over 500,000 downloads and listens again in 2023. Our YouTube views increased, our Patreon support increased over the year. And Jim, that is so heartwarming, especially after the worst season of our lifetimes uh, as White Sox fans, after a 101 loss season, Jim. So I'm very grateful for everyone that has supported Sox Machine in 2023. Yeah, it's heartwarming. It's also a huge relief because I think if uh, any season were to sink our enterprise based on quality of baseball last season would have done it. So to see our, you know, support our subscribership grow, uh, a little bit, despite everything that went wrong, like does make me optimistic that we can keep thinking about growing and keep thinking about expanding. Even if the team doesn't necessarily warrant it, you know, as you know, we mentioned, we watch the white Sox, so you don't have to. And like, if you want to keep paying us to do so, and just, we'll tell you what you need to know. Uh, it's our privilege and honor to do so. And we do have some events to make it more entertaining to be part of the White Sox fan community and the Sox Machine community. There's going to be more details coming this weekend regarding to our Kansas City meetup. So if you are a Patreon supporter, or if you're not and you're going to sign up, we'd love for you to sign up to help us out. Go to patreon.com slash Machine. I posted the interest form on Patreon. So please fill out that form. If you follow me on social media, I've also tweeted this out and I'll include the interest form in the podcast post on SoxMachine.com as I'll give you guys a brief overview on the plans that we have for Kansas City in July. Uh, this is from the July 18th to the 21st weekend of the 2024 season. It is, it is the weekend after the All-Star break as the White Sox travel to Kauffman Stadium. We're working on getting a block of hotel rooms. We're working on setting up a tour of the Negro League Museum. We'll have pregame and postgame meetup spots, transportation for the Saturday game, and single-game tickets are now on sale for that series. 
So if you want to sit with us, we're going to be sitting in section 108, of course, which is by the left field foul pole at Kauffman Stadium. So if you want to sit with other White Sox fans as we try to take over a section of the stadium, that's the section to be aiming for, section 108, and single-game tickets are on sale right now. Go to KansasCityRoyals.com. And that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts, such as Spotify and Apple Music. You can also watch the Sox Machine Podcast on our YouTube page at youtube.com slash Machine. If you do watch our videos, please hit the subscribe button. We greatly appreciate it. And like I mentioned several times in the podcast episode, but in case you forgot, we are on social media on all the platforms. Blue Sky, Threads, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. We're at Sox Machine, and you can follow me there at Sox Machine underscore Josh. And again, you can sign up for our Patreon at patreon.com slash Machine, where monthly plans start at $2, and our Patreon supporters receive exclusive content, ad-free versions of both the podcast and website, and when we have new Sox Machine swag or new Sox Machine events, so the first ones to hear about it, we still do have openings within our Veterans Committee, our VC group, acts as our board of directors. So when we have big business decisions to make at Sox Machine, we lean on their advice and their wisdom in helping us make those decisions. So if you really love Sox Machine, you would love to help us out there. You can sign up and apply to be part of our VC again at patreon.com slash Sox Machine. The Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com. You're on for all the things Chicago White Sox baseball and part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening and watching. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.